friends uh, today I want, uh, I'm going to give a talk on non-clinging our best subject When I was on staff here in 2000, there's a very beautiful quote by Ajahn Somedo about non-clinging on to Theravada tradition, Mahayana, Vajrayana, this technique, reading this, do this and that. Actually, I found this quote in my books here. And before coming, I looked for it until I said, don't cling on to this article. <laughs> Bante, don't cling. <laughs> what he said, Ajahn Somedo, is that he did this practice for two years, letting go, letting go. He said that you just have to practice only two things, let go, let go. And that's going to really bring you a lot of freedom from suffering. Really, honestly, I wanted to really bring this quote and read it, but I couldn't find it. Here's the lesson of letting go. I had to let go that quote. But if I find it, <laughs> I'll post it. It may not become part of my reading here, but I'll post it. I think it's something interesting. Freedom or liberation through non-clinging. I'm going to talk about the four kinds of clinging. Four kinds of clinging. One is clinging to self-identity view, which I talked about last time. Clinging on to wrong views. Also, I talked about this last time. Clinging to rules and rites, rituals. That's the third one. And the fourth one is clinging to sense of pleasures. Sense pleasures. Maybe some of you are familiar with these four. Is it familiar to you? Maybe not. Hmm? I think even clinging to the fact that the retreat is going to end is another form of clinging. For me, I said the retreat is going to start. When I lead the retreat always by myself, I, I tell yogis, I'm not going to end the retreat. <laughs> it's starting. <laughs> because once you live here, you go into real life and you have to apply what you have done here. So it's not ending. 
It's just a new beginning. So it's all different views. For you, it's ending. For me, it's beginning. So it's different views. Different. As a monk, I had to learn some lessons around these kind of things about clinging. Monastic life pushes you out of the normal range of the way you think about life because many times you've been a lay person choosing colors to put on, blue, red, yellow. You just put on this for almost 20 years now. You don't, you don't have much choice. <laughs> so you let go of your clinging on to colors. Maybe that's not a big thing for you, but <laughs> in Uganda, we are very particular which color you're going to put on because the tropical area, you can just keep on changing all colors all the time. My favorite one was gray suit. I am stuck with this for almost 20 years. <laughs> so you have to learn how to let go, whether you like it or not. But the form of letting go that really I saw in the monastic structure was more around food, actually. That was the biggest thing for me. First, starting from keeping eight precepts. In Uganda, our meal is almost 9 p.m. That's our major meal. You can skip skip breakfast, lunch, but dinner, you have to eat it with your father or siblings and all that. So it's nine. And here, just reverse the whole thing. At nine, you have to go to sleep (laughs) on an empty stomach. And in the morning, my stomach complained a lot. I remember being in San Jose in California, uh, keeping eight precepts, and San Jose Monastery called TMC, Tatagata Meditation Center is near the airport. So in the morning, airplanes will be just passing our monastery, changing landing gears. And my stomach was just doing the same thing. <laughs> Sometimes I would hold it, <laughs> not to get embarrassed, you know. I mean, I had to reverse the whole thing when to eat. And I got used to it. And once you get used to it, actually it's really good. Moved to that monastery in 2001, went to West Virginia to practice with Bhante Gunaratana. I saw how much craving I had for food in that monastery. <laughs> yes. In that monastery, the practice of eating in Amsbo is very, very important. No separating food. So you go in a line and everything is put in arms bow and everything mixes. Welcome to attachment food. <laughs> so it's okay, it mixes and uh, that's fine. And uh, I stayed there for eight years on and off, of course. I went to establish my monastery in Uganda. 
So about eight years I moved. I went back to Africa finally, and then after a few years I went to Sri Lanka for further studies. So when I was in Sri Lanka as a student since 2011, I used to have holidays and I went to a monastery. It's called Nauyana in Mary City Pura. Monastery. And that monastery, the way they train in monks is to really not cling on to sensual pleasures, especially testing food. So how they do it is very interesting. It's, I've never seen it in a monastery, even in Burma or USA. It's a, a particular monastery that does something very interesting to, so that you can give up your clinging to food. So you, you go to that monastery, they eat only one meal, hmm? one meal, about 10.30 a.m. And uh, you get your food. This is my arms bowl. Okay, this is arms bowl. You get your food and line up. And he, me as a, a person who lived in a monastery in West Virginia for eight years, I was accustomed to taking brown rice. So there I went to line up and people put food. Devotees, they put food. You don't put yourself. Devotees put the food for you. Brown rice there, Sri Lankan people, they don't take brown rice. They take white rice. So then once you finish your uh, taking this food, you go up stairs, and that's where you find a line of all monks, about 30 monks lining up. The first time, I didn't know what that we are doing, actually. They say, oh, you have to give everything that you got into the other arms bowl. So you keep on now. This is the food you get attached to, uh, to burnt rice. It's all there somewhere in the arms bowl. And then you keep on giving what you got, and the other person also gives you. Then you go to the other person all the way until the senior monk. By f the time you finish 30 monks, you don't have brown rice. Forget about it. Forget about it. Because all Sri Lankan people take white rice. Even if you, you are so meticulous and you want to keep it in a little corner, which I tried, trying to find a corner in the arms bowl where you can keep the brown rice, didn't work. <laughs> Clinging to tasting brown rice out of the window. Now there comes eating hot food. In Sri Lanka, the food is very hot, at least for me. I mean, very spicy. Sometimes the devotees are wonderful. They make sure that whatever goes in the arms bowl find its little corner. So they would then give you food, and then they would give you ice cream. Can you imagine an ice cream in arms bowl? <laughs> that alone, it will make it melt. But then sh having to share it, you end up with no ice cream. <laughs> and for me, I needed it not so much that I'm attached to ice cream, because the food is so spicy. I knew that uh, this ice cream will cool me off, you know. No way. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> All the time I lived in that monastery, no clinging to tasting food. You just eat. 
Just eat for keeping your life healthy so that you can practice Buddha's teaching. And that's a f- reflection, actually, we do. So this is something that uh, I, wa- I had to work with. And uh, up to now, when I'm eating food, I, I really try <laughs> to really uh, chewing, chewing, testing, testing, because I don't know what's going to come up next time. <laughs> I might end up in that monastery again. And <laughs> So what's this thing clinging, actually? We got a question sometime in a box. Somebody was asking, what's clinging? I knew the answer, but I said, okay. Uh, I don't know whether we answered it or not, but this is the time, I think, to fully explore it. So now we are going to go systematically, systematically to find out what is this thing called clinging. The Pali words are called upadana, upadana. It's, uh, it's broken into upa, a, long a, da, to give. So the whole thing means not giving up. It's an, in, it's an intensive craving of firm grasping. So craving is like gulping in the dark to steal an object. Clinging corresponds to actual stealing. I don't know about stealing, but the way I illustrate it is like this. So if this is, for me, would be craving, I crave to hold this, this thing, for me this would be craving hmm? or holding. But clinging would be... <laughs> so I don't want to let go. You'd rather take me with this thing, you know. <laughs> so that's how I would illustrate it, actually. So clinging gives a rise to a false notion of I, mine and myself, with all that energy. Of course, you don't want to let go. Uh, always, I would like to define something based on Buddhist psychology. Then you'll get the full range of the meaning. According to, uh, to Abhinama Sangaha, which is a good book for Buddhist psychology and philosophy, it will give you four areas how to define it. The characteristics of course, it defines greed, but it's the same range because the Buddha is talking. I mean, the, the book is talking about greed covers all degrees of self-desire, attachment, longing, and clinging. So here it's talking about the characteristics is grasping an object, like this one, grasping it. Mm-hmm. Function is sticking as meat sticks to a hot pan. So you get the idea. <laughs> and manifestation, it manifests like this, as not giving up. Not giving up. And proximate cause, not a producing cause, but supporting cause, is seeing enjoyment in things that lead to bondage. So, with those four areas, the, the characteristics, the function, manifestation, and proximity cause, I think you get some idea what clinging is, actually. So now, I'll structure my talk in a way that will keep us focused, as usual. Just even when I gave a talk on non-safe, I gave a talk about, I don't know, I forgot, actually. But anyway, I structure my talk around... What's the problem? What's the cause? 
What's the end? And the way to end. Just like the Buddha, they found about truth. So also I structured this talk in the same way. What's clinging? Now you know what's clinging. Now we are going to go to the second item. What is the origin of clinging? What's the origin? Well, uh, you know, we all know where clinging comes from. Don't we? I think we know <laughs> where it comes from. There is a discourse that I want to read to you, which is really dedicated to what I'm talking about. I'm going to read it for you. This discourse is so beautiful. And it's often quoted, actually, in many areas. Let me read it so that at least you know the territory we are going to cover. This is a discourse on short discourse. It's called the shorter discourse on the on the destruction of craving. It's in Majimanika, this book, number thirty-seven. Thus have I had. That's Vermananda. I had the monk, the, the Buddha. On one occasion, the blessed one was living in Savati in the Eastern Park in the palace of Nagara's mother. Then Saka, ruler of kings, went to the blessed one and after paying homage to him, he stood at one side and asked, Venerable how in brief is a bhikkhu liberated in, in the destruction of craving. One who has reached the ultimate end, the ultimate security from bondage, the ultimate holy life, the ultimate goal, one who is, one who is foremost among gods and humans. Now, here the answer comes. Here, rule of gods, is now suck. A bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worthy adhering to, clinging to. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth clinging on to or adhering to, he directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever feelings he feels, whether, whether pleasant or painful or neither, painful nor pleasant, he abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment, contemplating thus, he does not cling on to anything in the world. When he does not cling, when he does not cling, he does is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attain nibbana. I think somebody will talk about nibbana. 
um, he understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had been done had been done, there is no more coming to the state of being. Briefly, it is in this way, rule of kings, Saka, that a bhikkhu is liberated in the destruction of craving, one who has reached the ultimate end, the ultimate security from bondage, the ultimate, the ultimate holy life, the ultimate goal, and one who is the foremost among humans and God. So this is the whole sutta that uh, really talks about the end of craving and how also you can see it's talking about how to end it is to see the impermanence nature of the five aggregates. And if you are going to see them as permanent, then that means you are going to be clinging on something. So that's why I, saw, I talked about my talk is going to be around that structure so that when I mention things, you can always refer to that discourse. All right, so now, how all this comes? We know there are five kinds, I mean four kinds of uh, craving, but how, uh, or clinging? Actually, clinging is more intense form of craving. Rebecca already gave a beautiful talk about craving, you know. So this is an intense form, intense fight, you know, mm -hmm. big dose of craving, we can put it that way. Mm -hmm. So now, I kind of tracked from Buddha's teaching where really this clinging comes from. It comes first in past life. From past life, you come to this life, you get what they call ignorance from the past life, which is not a soul or self. You get the craving from past life and also the karma. So those three things, when they, you are coming to this life, you, they join you. <laughs> and uh, you get a f new aggregates. Hmm? Hmm? Brand new aggregates. Hmm? <laughs> I don't know, band, I don't know, band the next life, what will happen. You get really brand new ones. Hmm? <laughs> Plus the past, so that you are there. Now you're a baby sitting there. Ah, so beautiful. The baby is so beautiful. And now the baby wants to eat something. And they have, the baby starts crying because they want, they are clinging on to their food. Though they cry their brain out, you know. You know? And once you feed them, and you bring one spoon, they turn this way. They have a version now. You bring this way, they turn this way. So there are a bunch of desire, really. Though they are very peaceful, but they are very, very time bomb, actually. <laughs> this, what they have is called Anusaya. In the Pali word is called Anusaya. Means Anu means along. Saya comes from the Pali word called Sayati, which means sleeping. So babies have some clean sleeping there. They are just waiting for the right conditions. That's why you, uh, you annoy them. They'll give you what you, your share. Hmm? <laughs> they can really, even they're small, really, they really have all this kind of thing sleeping there. So that's where it comes from. Don't worry. That's where it comes from. But uh, there's something we still can do, even if it comes from past life, part of it. But let us talk about what comes in this lifetime now. Just forget about that. It's a package, you know. 
we didn't choose. <laughs> we just show up here and we find ourselves with some ignorance, some craving, and some this kind of thing, you know. Another area where the clinging originates is actually in our six senses. You have the eye, there's a visible object. This is a whole dependent origination, you know. When uh, the meeting of the two, then eye contact, I mean, eye consciousness, which is another way of saying seeing, then eye contact, from, uh, from that there's feelings, then there's craving, and then there's uh, clinging. If you are not mindful of this process at the moment of seeing, then the clinging will start on uh, setting in, attachment to the eye, craving for seeing, and the lasting for all visible objects, then uh, start uh, really uh, like even feelings when there's pleasant, unpleasant feelings. Then for pleasant, you start really having desire for pleasant experience, pushing away another form of clinging actually, Re- desire to get rid of the un- unpleasant. And then uh, it keeps on going like that until you start clinging, and somebody probably will talk more about what comes after that, like becoming, death, and birth, and all that. So there's a lot that comes after that, but it's very interesting. If you get to know this process, I think uh, we know where to really remove the clinging because we know the process very well. The third stage, a third way how clinging arises already is, take, uh, is already implied in the d- discourse that I've talked, I've taught you. I mean, I've read to you, is the five aggregates when we we actually not mindful, we don't practice mindfulness, and we don't have enough wisdom. We start taking these five aggregates as permanent, and once we start taking these five aggregates of clinging as a permanent, then we start clinging onto them. Of course, you can see where the, the, I'm going. It's the same number. F- the fourth is when we take those, the same five aggregates, when we take them as happiness, that they're sources of happiness. And finally, number five is when we take them to, to be a self. So actually, it seems the way they, were, the way they, they are organized seems to reflect in that way that actually they are permanent, but they are not. <laughs> it's just only a distortion we have. The Pali word is called uh, vipalasa, distorting something which is permanent, and we, um, I mean, we, that, that's impermanent, and we see it as permanent. Something which is suffering, we see it as uh, an, uh, happiness. Something which has no core, uh, then we, we take it to be uh, having a core. So five ways, I think, that, that clean, the, the, this kind of clinging arises, and you can add more. There's a lot. I, I just briefed, uh, gave a brief about this, but I think there are many ways how uh, cling can arise. I tell you one time I was in a monastery in Bhavana society. I didn't know where this clinging arose, actually. I don't know here. There's a, ah, it was about dowsing this, this candle. We had a, a way how to do it. It was a, a stick like this, metal, and it had a cup like this, whereby 
the people, monks who have been there for over 25 years, they have been doing it that way. They just tell you, okay, you put it with mindfulness. You do like this and lower it down like this, and the candle will go. So one time I was there in a monastery. One other monk was a newly ordained monk. He just got the candle like this. And the other monk said, no, no, you should not do that. that." And now Mia was there, and they said, no, who cares? Who cares how to blow out the candle? (laughs) So the other monk is really actually who has been there for 25 years. He said, this is the way to do it, but you have to do with mindfulness and put there. Then the monk said, no, you know, if you do like this, maybe saliva will come out and it's not good for people, you know. Blowing the candle by blowing, the saliva would come up. And for me, I had a different view, actually. I knew that this is not the way to blow out the candle. You just do like this. <laughs> it's gone. What I saw, that actually in monastery, there's not a whole lot of things to do. There's no TV. There's no <laughs> we always find somewhere. Something. Maybe the same thing applies to you here. There's not a lot of TV, no chocolate, nothing. Here is something happens. Either seeing, you know. <laughs> it's amazing for me when I'm on a retreat because there's no TV and there are all the things. But it's always when I'm doing walking, I want to see what other yogis are doing. I want to see. In fact, I can only see the feet, but then I, I want to connect the feet with the face. And I, one time I said to myself when I was practicing here, actually I used to practice a lot here as a layman. I used to come here and practice here. One time I made this determination. This is before I became a monk. I made a determination that I'm going to practice me, walking meditation without looking at anybody. I made that determination. I said, I'm not going to find anybody with golden eyes, and with two heads, uh, with five feet or legs. Sorry, sorry. We have two. I said, I'm not going to get anything special. So I decided to starve my senses that I'm not going to see, look at anybody walking. There's another guy I was staying with in Andover, I remember. For him, he just put a cuff up to here. Just enough to see the floor like this. I always worried about him, actually, that you're going to bump into a tree, you know. <laughs> That's how people are very creative on working on the kiresas, defilements, and all that. But for me, I said, I'm not going to put on a hat like this. I'm just going to not look at anybody. Because really, we so much clinging to our desire to see, and we don't want to give up. So, in the few days that comes, try to work with that and see exactly. Make a determination and say, okay, I'm not going to bump into a tree, but I'm not going to see anybody. And you're going to see how the mind works. <laughs> it's amazing. So, me, sometimes I look at the mind and it's so beautiful to look at it. In my experience in the monastery, I said, who cares? Hmm? Because I have a view, the other monk has a view, 
There are monk, three monks. And we are delaying to, to douse the candle. This is long, it's taking a long time. How to do it? <laughs> Up to now, I, I really believe. This is my view. I, mean, I don't know whether I'm attached to it or not, but I don't care how you're going to douse the candle, period. But there are people who care. One time when a meeting, I think about cooking. I always, the kitchen is always a brooding ground for views, you know. It was a monk from Canada who came and I was just going about about things about the kitchen, and he he really said, "Who really cares about this and that and that?" So we get so much caught up in our views, but at the end of the day, who cares? Who cares? For me, I ask myself, "Who really cares?" So that's helped me always to give up my views. So I think let's go now to the third stage. We've talked about the origin. We talk about now, of course, the end of it is really not clean. It's very simple. Don't clean. (laughs) That's where I should stop my talk, actually. (laughs) Sometime I I love, for the love of Dharma, I always want to say, I mean, what can you do? I mean, beyond that, what can you talk about? <laughs> I just come here, I said, don't cling, don't cling, and don't cling. Let us sit together. <laughs> anyway, if I have to say something, let me continue. There are four kinds of clinging, but it's very, very important for years. I, I was struggling to remember them. And also, how do I practice this? I found out a book called Visuddhimagga, Visuddhimagga, The Path to Purification. Actually, that book helped me a lot when it came to the four kinds of clinging. The question is, how, what's the most effective way out of all these four clinging? Where should you start? I always find, where can I start? It's too much. Mm-hmm. Clinging on to rice and rituals. And, uh, the book actually gave some ideas that the best way to start your path to liberation, I mean, you can start anywhere. I don't want you to, I don't want you to cling on to this again. It says that if you can start with the, uh, removing clinging to self-identity view, it really helps to overcome other kind of clingings. And I believe it. If you remember my talk, we we talked about uh, the trend ways hmm, of believing in the self. Do you remember the trend? You don't. (laughs) Yogi mind. (laughs) I think it's too much for yogi maybe. (laughs) So I mentioned about five aggregates, yeah, which you know already, and four ways of killing it. So four times five, that's 20. Very simple mathematics, you know. <laughs> so self as possessing the five aggregates. That's the first one. Second one, self in five aggregates. The, th- the, f- the third one is the opposite. Five aggregates in the self. Another one as self 
actually identical to five aggregates. To really put it very, very simply, you, we cling on to this self-identity in a way that uh, we take the self to be either identical to the five aggregates or uh, duality, se separate. So you can even really, uh, really reduce it to two. But let us keep five, four. So those four ways of clinging on to self times five, that's 20 ways. So if you can just practice that one, the rest are easy to work with because it's because of this belief in self-identity that brings the arising of wrong views. Which are the wrong views? Wrong views of... These wrong views, though, last time I talked about uh, that uh, they, they, are there, they, are, they were there before the Buddha, but even they are present now in, in Barry, Massachusetts here. The wrong views, <laughs> wrong view of believing that, okay, the self and the, the five aggregates are different or the uh, same. Uh, one wrong view is, we call it annihilation view. The Buddha gave about 62 views, actually, in one discourse in Diganika, but I don't want to come and read you all his views. It will be just... A lot, a lot of things to put in a brain of a yogi, you know. But if you can just remember only two, because all those 62 views can be collapsed into two. One is eternalistic view, another one, annihilation view, you know. Those are two. So now, already we cling on to those wrong views. Hmm? We cling on to them, and uh, the next, that's the second kind of uh, clinging, then the two clings, actually, according to, the, uh, to this book, Visuddhimagga, it's just behaviors. It's just behaviors. So when you cling on to the, to the wrong view that uh, there is a self separate from the five aggregates, so your behavior then is going to be uh, clinging on to rights and rituals so that you can please wherever the, the self is going. After death, all right, even this lifetime, we cling on to rights and rituals. Uh, Sila Bata Paramata uh, Paramasa, yeah. So, this r moral conduct and rights is not the five precepts because most people get so creative, they say, oh, What about the five precepts we keep? Are those not attached to rights and rituals? Mm? No, no, that's not because anything that's you, anything that you practice which is directly or indirectly connected to the Noble Eightfold Path, it's actually not a right and ritual. Hmm? They are, the rights and rituals were different. They are just practicing, let's say, walking like a cow, walking like a dog, think that it's going to, uh, this practice is going to lead to enlightenment. That's where they did this, that's why they clinged on to rights and rituals. Then the question comes, you monks also, we see you rituals, you do this and this, especially when you go to a monastery, most people always challenge us, you know, you should not cling on to your rules. You have 227 rules, you are clinging on to your rules. <laughs> no, it's not. 
because they are really directly or indirectly, indirectly connected to the number eight four path. So the other form of behavior, it's materialistic view where you think that at moment of death everything is going to be kaput. So you better enjoy while you are here. So those people actually, uh, even now, we have people who are believing that, uh, that enjoy while it's here. After all, at the end of their life, nothing survives. Uh, you die and the earth goes to earth, water goes to earth. I mean, water goes to water, fire goes to water. These are elements. That's how they believe like that. Up to now, these are some views people have. Scientific community might hold some of those views. Yeah, but you see, according to this book, it makes sense that it's a behavior of people who believe that that's going to be the end of life. And the other one who believe that eternistic view, that life is going to continue on and on, the soul is going to keep on going on and on and on, then uh, they practice what's called rats and rituals. So those are uh, the four clings, and for me, the way they are actually grouped like that, it makes sense for me to practice with them. First one, not killing you on to self-identity view, not clinging on to wrong views, not clinging on to uh, rights and rituals, and not clinging on to uh, sensual pleasures. So those are the four. So now, uh, how to practice? I found three ways how to practice. That's the last stage of my talk. How do we get liberated from this clinging? I've already read you the discourse, but I found it easy, not easy. If I say easy, then people say, okay, they, uh, they're going to cling on to it. <laughs> I found practical ways of practicing this, given by all my teachers. There are five ways, uh, but I've, I've collapsed them into three. Already you know the entire discourse is about non-clinging. It's called the Four Foundation of Mindfulness. The Buddha repeated 21 ways this statement. He abides, viharati, abides, lives independently, not clinging on to anything in this world. The Buddha is talking about the world of five aggregates or six senses. That's, according to the Buddha, that's his, the world, not Uganda and all these kind, uh, kind of these worlds. So the world is the, our experience itself. So not clinging on to anything in this world as I, mine, or myself. In my talk, I, I, you remember that when I told you not I am with? Not I, not mine, not myself. So if you remember that one, that would be good. So that is what we are doing. In fact, my very first talk uh, during this retreat, I went through the whole discourse. That's what we need to do in order to overcome this clinging. We don't need to practice all the 21 ways in one seat. One time I attended this uh, at a forest refuge in 2003, Sado Pandita, he laid the discourse on the four foundation of mindfulness, and at the end we had to ask him questions. My very question, I asked him, yes, thank you very much, Sado, 
for your, for your teaching. He said, no, it's not my teaching. It's Buddha's teaching. Just right there. <laughs> then, <laughs> and very stunning. <laughs> and then I asked him, are we going to practice all these 21 ways and attain a liberation in all our retreat here? He said, you don't have to do all the 21 ways. He, he gave an example which is stuck in my head. He said that when you have a ball of thread, this is the ball of thread. This is all the 21 ways hmm, of mindfulness, for, the, for financial mindfulness. He said that you just pick only one end of the thread and keep on pulling, keep on pulling, keep on pulling, pulling, pulling. pulling. The entire ball of thread will just open. He saved me. Because every foundation, I liked it. I like a bit of mindfulness of breathing, a little bit of elements, a little bit of six, a little bit of this. And that thing, that this is what the yogis are doing. I like a little bit of this. I like a little bit of Vedana. I like, and then Bhante now talks about five aggregates. I like five aggregates. Uh, then uh, Tuella will come with six senses. Uh, yes, six senses works. So we keep on just like that. Stay rest assured that the Buddha gave 21 ways of mindfulness. Try, test each of them, no problem. Not say, don't test. You can test six aggregate, five aggregates, six senses. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying at some stage, just keep going deep, deeper and deeper and deeper, you know? So, and don't feel that you'll not get enlightened. Hmm? if you get one of them and continue on the practice. But in fact, as, even when you get one, the rest even appears, actually. Let's say you start with six senses, you end up with five aggregates. <laughs> you end up with this. So it's just a, beaut- a beautiful practice, you know. You keep on practicing, the whole thing unfolds. All right, these are, I hope I have time. Let's see. Okay, three ways. Very simple, but very practical. According to the training that I, some of it I got, is the first one is five aggregates that really I found out always five mindfulness of five aggregates brings me closer to really this practice of uh, non-clinging because the five aggregates are called five aggregates subject to clinging. So if that's part of your practice, then every time you're practicing, you are overcoming clinging to uh, the five aggregates. So that becomes the practice that really dominates my practice. Even when I'm touching this, I saw the five aggregates. All of them, the five aggregates. The body, perception, and all. Five aggregates are there. So you practice and divide them into namarupa. All right? On one side, there's body, or matter. On the other side, there's mind. So... This distinction, don't take it lightly, because when you look at the whole structure of the, the foundation of mindfulness, it's all about dividing that. The body being divided into the breath, to the four elements, to this, and until the nine stages of uh, the, the, the corpse uh, decay. You know, everything is really breaking it apart so that you don't have that solidity of clinging on self-identity. Then on the mind, he just keep on splitting into Vedana and then mind states and all these things. So that's a very, very good place to start, you know, so dividing the two. The second one is, the second step is called dependent 
co-arising, dependent origination. Not so much are the 12 links, but there's a Burmese tradition that Sierra uh, Upandita gave a, a workable, practical, dependent origination. And I think it's coming from this teaching of Sanyuta Nikai, which says, when this is, that is. When this is not, that is not. When this arises, that arises. When this is, this ceases, that ceases. So those instances, that's the instance of the, uh, the, the dependent origination, it has those four parts. And the way they did it is to really divide our experience into those four. How does the mind affect the mind? How does the body affect the body? How does the mind affect the body? And how does the body affect the mind? So going through this, actually, it helps us uh, to see clearly what's really Buddha was talking about, dependent arising, when things are arising. Very practical, right? So in your walking, you can start with this walking. As you're walking, there's intention to walk and there's walking. So intention to walk belongs to the mind, right? And you can see series of intentions arising and passing away. And then the body walks. It would be, what would be very interesting to really look at your intentions and you don't walk and see what will happen. It would be very interesting to see whether your intention has not passed away. And you just stay in one place and you find the yogi, hey, why are you not walking? <laughs> You know, my intention has not passed away. You know, so it will be very, very interesting to watch, actually, these intentions. So now how the mind conditioned the mind, we can look at this link as from craving, actually. Craving, and a link of craving. It can affect our minds or condition our mind to have clinging. Even craving can condition our mind to have fear. So that's the dependent origination in practice, you know. Then sometimes the body condition the body. You start uh, uh, placing somewhere hardness, and then it changes into something else, softness. Uh, we can see also uh, the other way around, uh, how a body affects the mind when you have physical pain and it turns into anger. So those four things are very important to remember. Body condition the body, mind condition the mind, Mind condition the body and the other way around. So, and you start seeing that one in your practice. You can see how you break down the whole idea of clinging, actually, to something. Because you can see everything is just dependently arising. So I think this, for me, is very practical than remembering all the links, 12 links. Because I can see it at work from moment to moment. I can illustrate now right? how the body, how mind conditioned the body. Thinking about drinking my hot water, it's an intention. It's arising from the mind, and out of that, I'm just going to reach out and get the cup, and then take it. Then oh, it's hotness. Then desire. My cup here, can you put some sugar, some honey? <laughs> Desire comes, you know. So you can see, now he puts on uh, some, uh, some honey, too much. I don't like it. <laughs> then that's mind conditioning the mind, you know. You put in the sugar, and then I'm testing it, and I don't like it, and the irritation comes, aversion arises, and uh, 
And the whole thing can come just like this, right there. And I appreciate, actually, these teachers, uh, where I learned this, uh, dependent origination in practice. I mean, you can be philosophical and really get all things, but for me, this one, again, this is something I can work with on moment to moment to seeing the rising and passing of the intentions. The third stage, where you have to, uh, to look at how to overcome the, uh, this clinging, is actually practicing five aggregates in 15 ways. 15 ways. I've just created that list. <laughs> because the five aggregates, if you can see each of them as impermanent, that's five. That's enough. Because another, the one side of the coin is impermanence. The other side of the coin is non-self. That's it. <laughs> so that's, I call it the third way of overcoming this clinging. So you take these five aggregates as impermanent. That's five. You take the same set. Don't go for another set because there are so many. <laughs> There's a 16 of that, I mean 18 of this and 12 of this. But just keep on with five aggregates. Take them as suffering. That's 10. Then the five aggregates as non-self. That's 15. 15 ways of working with it. And I call that the third way of dealing with non-clinging. Well, it's all talked about. I've talked about the, what's clinging, the cause, and, 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 and the solution, and the way to eat. But still people say, there's something to clinging. There's still something somewhere I need to cling on. Maybe my biscuit, my cookie, and all that. <laughs> you have it all. <laughs> But people say, yes, but I will have to cling on something. Clinging is good, actually. <laughs> you suffer. You know, for me, I, it's very clear when I have a lot of aversion in my life. And I, it takes me a while to see, you are just clinging on to that mind state. Drop it. And for me, I remember very well in psychology where they, they talk about the function of aversion of anger is to burn its support. So really, actually, it's burning your body and mind. That state of mind, anger, it's burning you. Now it's like uh, something is hot, this like this, it's burning you, and you continue on holding on to it. But it's burning you. That's why the Buddha, I mean, this Buddhist discourse is talking about uh, really <laughs> enjoying <laughs> something that leads to bondage. So we cling on to it. That's the proximity cause. So, but still, the problem we're having, we hear all these talks and this Buddhist teaching, and, but in daily life, we survive looking at things as permanent, as happiness, and have self. So it's very difficult to escape, actually. It takes courage to really embrace this teaching because in our daily life we go, we live here, we go home. And you hear all the stories everywhere and also you experience probably, I love you. I love you. Then a person has listened to this teaching of the Buddha, love is impermanence, 
everything which is permanent has a, has a potential to suffer, suffering, and then there's no self. Then you, start, you cannot undo those things. When someone says, I love you, and you start to say, you know, love is impermanent. <laughs> Especially on a honeymoon. You go on a honeymoon somewhere, you've been saving money, and you go on a very good cruise in a holiday and say, darling, I love you. Love is arising. <laughs> there is no self to love here. Can you do that? Certainly I cannot. <laughs> and the worst thing you can ever do is to say that love is suffering. Because logically, if you say that everything is, that is impermanent is suffering, and everything which is suffering has non self. So it, if somebody says, I love you, the first thing is to challenge them. Hmm? If, and somebody who has listened to these teachings. We can't. That's how we live in our life, in order to survive with the, in a society. How can we, on one hand, practice this inside ourselves and get liberated, as the topic, liberation through and clinging, and in a society there, really live with people who, where we can communicate easily. Otherwise, we, be, we become a nuisance. Sit here, you don't you get a cab. Sit here. What's your name? No name. <laughs> Actually, I, for a long time, I used to have name cards uh, because I used to go to conferences, United Nations Conference, climate change in Denmark. And all. Sometimes people told me you should have your business card. I said, I have no business. Okay, have a name card. So what I did, I wrote an address of Uganda Send, and I said, no name. That's how my commitment to non-self. No name. They say, what's no name? Later on, I have to change my strategy. <laughs> anyway, we have to survive in their life. That's the message. survive in their life, but let's practice the Dhamma. That's the way to liberation. I have a practice which is, I think uh, I will share with you. It's called sit in a window practice. Sit in a window practice. You're sitting in a window there. So, when it's time to look at ultimate reality as everything is impermanent and uh, suffering and unself, I just look there. And when it comes to look on one side, oh, you know, there's some permanence there coming on, happiness and self. I just turn like that. So I don't struggle so much. Otherwise, life can be a struggle whereby you get so much attached to your views that everything is impermanent, suffering, and non-self. Period, and then you go to our day life, and you find everybody is talking about everything as self, and it has the happiness, and it is everything is permanently permanent. I love you until the sun just dries, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, that kind of thing until the sun. <laughs> Sit in a window practice. That's
that's what I do. When I go to Uganda, everybody say, Bante, I like your dress. It's a beautiful fashion. Where did you get it? <laughs> you know, it looks like a fashion. Sometimes you put it like this, sometimes you pull like this. So people get confused at the airport. Do you think I'll get a lot of pride? <laughs> just put on this robe, but people just want to praise me. Why? You dress so exquisitely, exquisitely, something. I cannot even pronounce that. I go to these events, actually, the, the monk, they invited on this event. And, wow, I like you. You dress so smart. You are so smart. I'm not so smart about this, you know. This is something 20 years put in the same color, you say I'm smart. No. No way. So, I, la- I teach you how not to suffer. See it in a window practice. Anyway, let's go. It's the end of the talk. <laughs> Let us sit together for a moment. A bhikkhu who has heard that nothing is worth a cling on to us, me, I, mine, he directly knows all things. May all beings be liberated. May they, all beings be free from suffering and causes through non-clinging. Thank you for your practice and your attention.